are listening to a podcast from The National. Hello and welcome to Beyond the Headlines. I'm Mean Al-Arabi, Editor-in-Chief of The National. This was meant to be the week that the United Kingdom officially left the European Union. 29 March 2019 was the official date set for Brexit after the British government invoked Article 50. And yet, it seems unlikely that that deadline will be met. British Prime Minister Theresa May is facing mounting pressure within her own party and among her people to find a solution. After a number of historic defeats in Parliament, Ms. May's position is being challenged, while no clear alternative leader is emerging. More importantly, Britain's position in the world is being questioned as it becomes increasingly inward-looking. I sat down with former British Prime Minister Tony Blair, a staunch opponent of Brexit, in Dubai to discuss what comes next. Brexit, what a week. I wanted to ask you first, where do we go from here in terms of a compromise on Brexit? What we've got to do is put in place an agreed process or plan for resolving Brexit. And that's going to require Parliament to come to an agreement, not necessarily at this stage as to what the conclusion is on Brexit, but a process for making that conclusion. Because the problem has been that we've, I'm afraid, wasted two and a half years in a negotiation that was never going to succeed, where Britain tried to have the benefits of access to Europe's single market and customs union without the obligations, which was never going to work. And the, the reality is there is a choice that the country faces. There, you know, Brexit can be one of two things. It can mean a close relationship with Europe in trading terms, which means membership of the single market or customs union. Mm-hmm. Or you can break out of those two things, but we've traded there for four and a half decades. And if you do that, it's a painful it's a painful process. So I always say there's a, there's a choice of, of a Brexit, one that's pointless and the other that's painful. But frankly, that is the choice. And the trouble is, at the moment, neither Parliament nor the country has been willing to face up to the binary and stark nature of that choice. And that's what's going to happen. So what we need is, a, first of all, a process agreed to find out what it is Parliament wants. And then the question will arise, do we then put the final say with the people? So the question about the final say with the people, we've seen the petition that's gotten over 4 million votes. We've seen the People's March in the streets of London. So there's clearly a core, strong group that is unhappy with the process, but also is unhappy with Brexit. Is that indicative enough that there has to be a change and making a second vote, a people's vote? Well, I think, you know, if I was a member of parliament and I saw that size of a march, but actually even more the online petition, which is really almost 5 million people now, I mean, that's a lot of people, uh, you know, to, to, to get exercised about an issue. And really, the case, by the way, to go and give the final say to the people is in any event, in principle, very strong. Because when we voted in June 20, 2016, we, know, we knew what we were voting to leave, but we didn't know what the new relationship would be. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, in principle, perfectly reasonable to say, once we've decided what our future relationship should be, that then you get a final endorsement of that from the people. But now, after this mess, I mean, how can people possibly say that it's undemocratic or wrong to check with people 
whether they want to think again. I mean, I, I, I honestly find I struggle to find how people can say it's an undemocratic thing. I know they voted to leave, but we've had now almost three years with a decision of this magnitude and this mess. I think it's perfectly understandable to say, okay, you know, people vote to carry on with Brexit, then we have to do it. It must be astounding to be watching this from outside um, Parliament and outside Downing Street. What would you do? What would you do if the decision was now in your hands? Well, I think what I would do is what I think should have happened right from the very beginning, which is whoever is Prime Minister has to recognise two things. One, um, there is no Brexit that does not involve that hard choice um, of what type of future relationship we want with Europe. And you've got to be prepared to specify the different options for it. And secondly, that there is no Brexit that is going to unite the country. The country is divided. You know, as people say to me, oh, well, another referendum might divide the country. The country is divided. I mean, there's no point in kidding ourselves. So I would have from the beginning and still would which is why we need more time for this, by the way, I would be the educator, the facilitator, the arbiter, rather than try as I, th I think this has been the mistake of the Prime Minister up to now, and I'm not saying anything to you, I haven't said so publicly in the UK. The mistake has been to try and push for a particular outcome when there is no way that you can get an outcome that's going to unite the country. You've actually got to lay out the options for people honestly as to what the different types of Brexit are and then try and leave them um, to a conclusion uh, and do that by being more of a referee than a team captain. But if you were to, if you were to do that, if you were to educate, it would almost go against the grain of how the entire campaign was done on Brexit. I mean, there was no nuance. It almost felt like people didn't want to hear details and nuance and facts and all of that. Do you think the mood has changed? Do you think people are now more receptive to say, I'll give you the time to explain the nuance and to help me referee through this period? Well, it's a good question. I don't know. I'm not sure. But, you know, one of the things we've got to rediscover in politics is the role of leadership. Mm. I mean, leaders should listen, but they've got to lead in the end. And... You know, one of the things this whole Brexit business has taught us is the virtue of parliamentary democracy and the virtue of it over plebiscite democracy. Because truthfully, you know, these are situations where the detail does matter. And, you know, as I always say to people, because I think a large part of the country, to be, to be frank, thinks, look, we voted for Brexit. Why the hell haven't you guys done it? The truth of the matter is the MPs are doing what they're supposed to do. They're studying the detail and they're saying, well, look, it can mean different things and these different things have very different consequences. So, you know, ultimately, yes, uh, I think it's very important that we do explain the detail, even though I agree sometimes people just think, well, look, I don't, I don't want to hear any more about Brexit. Do you think a general <clears throat> election now is inevitable before we can move on with Brexit? No, I don't think so, because I think, I'm not sure what a general election really does right now. Um, because frankly, both, there's different views in both political parties. I, I, I think it's better that we treat Brexit as a sui generis issue. Mm -hmm. So I think you, you should, you know, another referendum, but this time with the final say 
on what Parliament has decided, being with the people. I think that's a better way to go because the general election will mix up a whole lot of different issues. But what if the Prime Minister doesn't have the backing that she needs and there is a push for a caretaker government, for example, or a new leader of the Conservative Party? I mean, I, I'm not sure what a new leader at this point really solves. Um, I mean, I guess it's a different person taking forward the negotiation. Mm -hmm. I think for me, whoever is prime minister at this moment has got to switch into this facilitator role because mm -hmm. that is the only way you're going to make sense of the bitter, bitter divisions that there are. And I also think if I was a conservative MP, I, I think you've got to think long and hard about just kind of, you know, you now swap another prime minister. Um, mm -hmm. But, I mean, you know, it's... You know, the Conservative Party is a very difficult uh, and unruly animal right now. As is the Labour Party. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah that I mean, do true. you look to the Labour Party and think, this is not the party I led? I mean, thinking about the time when you were leading the Labour Party and where we are now. No, it's plainly not uh, where we were in the days of New Labour, that's for sure. Although I still think there is a significant part of the party that wants a modern, progressive, <clears throat> Labour Party that's capable of providing modern solutions to the problems that we have. But no, you're right. It's, um, it's, a, it's a strange situation with both political parties, as it is all over the Western world today. The independent group was one where we thought, are we seeing the emergence of a new political party? Is this new Labour, new Labour, um, or new, new Labour? Um, do, do you think the independent group or, or other sort of groupings like that, where people are stepping away from the polarizing politics and actually saying, we need to be in public service, we need to find common ground. A possible third way? Yes, I, mean, I think that, that there's no doubt to my mind that the independent group and, you know, I've stayed in the Labour Party, but I think they did take a courageous decision. I think it's very difficult <clears throat> to do that. Um, but what they are arguing for is undoubtedly what is an, is an unrepresented political um, sentiment in the UK right now uh, because what's happened is that the activists of both main political parties have moved to the more further to the right and further to the left and so there is this large kind of what I would call roughly center ground that's not presently um, not presently represented and I think you know I've, I've always said this if you carry on in the two main parties stick in their in their lagers of ideology, uh, that's lagers spelled L-A-A-T-E-R, uh, they stick it in, in, in that ideological position. That large terrain is going to be cultivated by somebody. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those people come from the MPs from the Conservative Party and come from the Labour Party and are now presently cultivating it, they're going to be joined by others for sure if the two parties don't change. Are you tempted yeah. to get back into parliamentary politics? I don't, I don't think parliamentary politics. I'm heavily involved, obviously, in the campaign, and, and uh, you know, I'm much more involved in politics now. My institute's really trying to develop a modern policy agenda for what I would call you know, the center ground of politics. Um, so I, I don't have any intentions or plans to go back into the front line myself. You spoke about a divided country. Um, and you spoke about also the challenges that face the two main British political parties are not solely exclusive to the United Kingdom. 
And we see that in other parts of the Western world. We see certain dynamics in Italy, what we're seeing happening in, in the United States and others. How do Western liberal democracies get out of what appears to be a real rut? Yeah, that is a very, very good question. It's an enormous challenge. You see, politics today is conducted in a completely different atmosphere that's been revolutionized by social media. I think the financial, post-financial crisis has made politics more difficult in the West. Although I'm kind of, I'm a bit of a skeptic about how, the degree to which that of itself is changing things. I think we live in a fast-changing world where people want to cling on to identity. Yeah. And they worry that they're losing control of the environment around them. And, and, and they want to feel some sense of belonging and that not everything in, in the world is changing without their consent or control. And I think what the, the right politics today is to show people that actually they can be optimistic about the future and they can be helped to it. That, you know, there are policies and programs that can allow people to, to feel that they still do have this sense of belonging and do, they'll still have, their, still do have their own identity whilst being happy coexisting in a, in a world that's changing around them. And, you know, I think this is true in all politics. It's why, for example, what the UAE represents in, in the Middle East is also important because there's an aspect to it that's very much about promoting cultural tolerance, you know, reaching out to, to people who are different. And this is the way the world's got to work. And the West at the moment, you know, the left wants to target business and blame it, and the right wants to target immigrants and blame them. And you we've got to stop searching for scapegoats and start searching for solutions. Well, one of the things the UAE also has is long-term planning, visionary leadership that can say, this is where we want to get, we're planning for 2071, the centenary of the country. And long-termism is not something that we see in, in most yeah. of Western liberal democracies. Yeah, so today. politics is, in the West is, is very short-termist at the moment. And you know what you, a lot of politicians will tell you in the West is, look, there's no point in giving us this long-term you know, framework because we're just operating in the next election cycle. Yeah. What I will say to them is that, look, the best politics, though, does appeal to long-term thinking at the same time. In other words, of course you've got to, you know, you're, you're running your election campaign, you've got to win power. Uh, you know, you can't just say to people, look, I'm going to create a better tomorrow some distant time in the future. Obviously, that's true. But I do think having some clarity of vision and strategy is important. And that if you set it out in the right way, you can take more difficult short-term decisions because there is some long-term goal that you're able to describe to people. And I think you know, what I would like to see is obviously a revitalization in the West of that politics that I think is more attributable to the center of real solid, long-term thinking that recognizes the changes that are happening in the world and is preparing nations to meet them. We saw exceptional leadership from the Prime Minister of New Zealand <clears throat> after a true tragedy, um, horrific act of violence. But out of it came the leadership of the Prime Minister of New Zealand and also a coming together, what you were describing about the coexistence mm. while maintaining your identity. And it was really something that the whole world has has stood in and seen that this can be a model. First of all, you know, your thoughts about New Zealand's position, how they've reacted to this, bringing in Muslims and actually saying, 
you are us or yeah no i think it was it was um uh just showed great leadership i think it's uh it was actually a very powerful global emblem mm -hmm. of how you can do things in a coexistent and, and respectful and tolerant way the challenge is you've got to deal with the people that are propagating hate you know whether they're their hatred is derived from Islamophobia or, you know, this far-right hate or whether the hate is, you know, from the Islamist side of the spectrum as well. You've got to deal with it because in the end, yes, it's important to give a, a solid, you know, sense of the right sentiments and the right feelings. But ultimately, you know, we're going to have to investigate how this far-right far ideology and propaganda is um, is originating, we're going to have to deal with it, and likewise with the, the ideologues on the other side. Um, but I think what works is a, a combination of a, arguing for a framework of coexistence, and then it's easier to see how, at the same time as you're promoting tolerance, you set the limits of tolerance. Because in the end, you know, in a sense, you've got to be intolerant of intolerance. You know, you've got to be able to say, look, here is free speech, but if you're using free speech or abusing it in order to incite hatred, that's not acceptable. Um, but, you know, we need, to, we need to be able to deal with these arguments, both at the level of, of you know, vision, which is around coexistence and the better idea of coexistence, um, as opposed to this extremist ideology, but also we've got to deal with it at the level of taking the measures necessary to show these people they're not going to be given a space in order to propagate. My final question for you is about Britain's place in the world. One of the slogans we were hearing um, during the whole Brexit campaign is global Britain. That if Britain's relationship with Europe and the EU changes, we can be global Britain. Does that mean anything to you? Do you think Britain needed to become more global by getting out of Europe? Where is Britain's place in the world today? I'm, I'm a great believer in, in global Britain, but it's an odd way to um, project global Britain by leaving the biggest political union, largest commercial market on your doorstep. So I've always, in my view, Brexit, I'm afraid, is not really about global Britain. I mean, I think part of the trouble with Brexit is that the, Brexit involved a coalition between two groups of people who, in fact, fundamentally disagree. One is what I would say are the more the intellectual driving force behind Brexit, which were people who feel Europe's too narrow for Britain and want a sort of globalizing Britain. But let's be very clear, a lot of the foot soldiers of the Brexit campaign were people who actually uh, worry more about immigration and deglobalization. Mm -hmm. So, no, global Britain, look, I think it's very important to say this to people, and I, I said it at the conference here in Dubai today, and I'd say it to you that I'm passionately opposed to Brexit. I hope we can stop it. But if it goes forward, you know, we will sort ourselves out in the end. You know, Britain remains a great country with great people, um, great culture, great tradition, and you know, we, it may look, and its politics may look a big mess at the moment, but we'll sort it out. And people should have no doubt, I always say this to people, long term, don't be under any doubt, one way or another, Britain will get back on its feet again and, and you know, be a, a, a global force. The quicker we do it, the better. Do you think Brexit could be stopped? I think Brexit, I think, can be stopped if, if 
Britain's allowed to think again. Um, whether it will or not is, you know, that's a matter of which the next two or three weeks will tell us a lot about. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you speaking Thanks, to Rina. The National. A mess of a process with a binary and stark choice. Those are Tony Blair's words and how many in the United Kingdom are feeling about the current conundrum. While the possibility of a second referendum seems stronger than ever before, it would require an agreement of what getting out of the European Union would actually mean. In the grand scheme of things, and as we look to the future of the United Kingdom, Tony Blair is correct in that Theresa May remaining in office or not matters little. Britain's place in the world is more important and is beginning to look less significant following its failure to negotiate a matter of such importance. Meanwhile, please tune in next week for another episode of Beyond the Headlines. <laughs>